behind the drawing boards, behind the benches, on the assembly lines. American industry is making the greatest production effort in history. And speaking of hasty shiftovers, one day these presses were making beverage barrels. The next day they were making oxygen cylinders as pretty as you please. In cooperation with the aircraft industry, General Motors has pioneered in applying mass production methods to the manufacture of aircraft. This is the people's way of saying, from the home front to the battlefront, from movie stars to sales clerks, America's 130 million citizens are in the war. Those are old newsreels from World War II, a time when American industry mobilized to support the military, reconfiguring their assembly lines to produce things like airplane engines and tanks. 75 years later, companies find themselves in a completely different type of war, the battle against COVID-19. And once again, many businesses are responding to calls for help. We've talked about what's happening in the healthcare sector, but you have other companies as well, both large and small, who have shifted gears to produce much needed supplies like ventilators and masks. Today, you're gonna to meet the leaders of a couple of those companies. I'm Alan Murray. This is Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Okay, so I'm here with Fortune Senior Editor Ellen McGird. Ellen, great to be with you once again. Great to be with you, Alan. I have to say, watching how businesses has responded over the last few weeks, I've been impressed by the amount of energy and attention that's being directed to the COVID-19 crisis. It's really a pretty remarkable show of determination and energy. It really is. And even though these are terrible times, I can't help but feel that we're in the middle of a global masterclass and crisis innovation. People are conjuring up new solutions to help the world with the capabilities that they already have. Yeah, you've recently spoken with two CEOs who've taken big steps in that direction. Tell us about it. That's right, and prepare to be inspired. Up first is K.R. Schreeder, the CEO of Bloom Energy. They're a clean energy company based in San Jose, California, that went public in 2018. Now they're growing fast. They've reported about $668 million in sales for the nine months ending September 2019, which was a 27% increase from their first year. Schreeder describes Bloom as a mission-driven company. He set out with the goal of addressing energy poverty, reliability, and sustainability. He told me their fuel cells power mostly corporate clients, like hospitals. So back in the middle of March, California Governor Gavin Newsom put out an urgent plea asking manufacturers of any kind to pitch in to provide ventilators or any essential equipment. And Bloom Energy stepped up. So I got a call uh, literally from the governor saying that he had reached out uh, to the ventilator refurbishers and makers, and they had given him a date of August or some date like that far out in terms of how long it'll be before they can refurbish this 500 plus ventilators at that time. They had in a basement garage in Sacramento as part of the state stockpile. And like any equipment, you know, just imagine your car sitting in a garage if they were sitting there for years without being touched, you can't simply turn the key on, turn the ignition and expect it to drive. It's the same with ventilators. You know, they have to be refurbished, validated, 
made sure everything is working. And it was going to be that long. So I said, you know, we don't know anything about ventilators, but all that I know is it's a flow device. Oxygen comes into a patient and you breathe out the air. So it's got to have some pumps. It's got to have some valves. It's got to have some batteries. How complex can that be compared to what we built? I'm more than happy to take a look at it. The next morning, we sent a couple of our employees with a pickup truck to Sacramento saying, give us a few, let's just take it to our shops and see what we can do with it. That's our California Silicon Valley spirit, I guess. And uh, so the Tiger team then is a group of people who volunteer and say, I'm in, okay, when you put the challenge up. So lo and behold, at the end of that night when we picked it up, we were able to put one back together and make it operate. And then we had 20 more in the pickup truck and we were able to do everything on that Saturday. And this was all a small group of volunteers with a leader saying, let's go try this. So did you say there was a leader? I'm curious if what makes a Tiger team work best is that there's no leader. Well, leader in the sense of somebody is going to coordinate. But for us, leadership is really a servant leader model. So leader is not telling you what to do. Uh, Leader is helping everybody bring their skills in, do what they need to do. So collectively, we can do better than any one person doing it on their own. Now, and I, I will say with all love and due respect to Silicon Valley spirit, the servant leadership part seems less like the kinds of spirit that I've reported on in the past. Do you screen when you're hiring people for servant leadership orientation? We do. We do. So, uh, you know, if you look at a Bloom Energy server, from the materials that go into it, from the equipment that actually make the parts, to how we monitor and maintain it, it's a brand new industry. We had to create everything, which means none of us knew everything that anybody has to know. And it's extremely multidisciplinary, cross-functional. You cannot create a innovative work environment with cross-functionality of that kind, unless you have a servant leadership mentality and respect for each other. So that is core to our screening process when we screen our employees. So did you need to rework your factory in any meaningful way to be able to start rehabbing these, these ventilators? We took a warehouse and we converted that warehouse to a makeshift facility where we could do the ventilators. And as soon as we figured out how to do that in California, we said East Coast looks like they're gonna have the needs and the logistics of moving those ventilators back and forth is multiple days that people should not have to afford. Therefore, we're gonna teach our team in Delaware how to do this by video training. And so as we were doing things, they were learning on the fly and copying a copy exact facility in Delaware as we were doing it here in California. That is so impressive. Now, are you still manufacturing fuel cells at this point? Yes, we are. So we are essential services and we do that. And you know, here's an interesting thing. Something we learned through this process is we said, not only are we gonna do ventilators, but we are doing these pop-up hospital power. Our people need to come to work, but without employee safety, Mm-hmm. There is no way you're going to be able to serve others. You have to take care of yourself if, if you have to help others. So our team completely retooled our manufacturing line end-to-end. We completely re-engineered the entire process line so there can be social distancing at every step 
and no two people have to be near each other within less than six feet as we do this manufacturing. There's a lot we can do. You know, I'll give you a very simple example, right? Our ingress and exit was the same doors. And we realized between shifts as employees go back and forth, even if we create the social distancing, there's a lot of, you know, very close quarters and mingling that happens. So we just modified things and we created a different exit from the, you know, like ingress. And we staggered our shifts based on what rooms people are by five minutes each. And therefore, we could just completely change the flow of people coming in and going out. Uh, So to be able to do that takes imagination. It takes the commitment to saying safety comes first. So Schmieder and his team have now refurbished 1,200 ventilators. And their facilities will allow them to rehab almost 2,000 a week if needed. But he didn't stop there. Schmieder started thinking about how difficult it was for even well-funded hospitals here in the States to get their hands on ventilators. Where did that leave developing countries? And what about ventilator design? He thought, wouldn't it be great if a ventilator could serve multiple patients at once? My good friend, Dr. Joseph Wu at like Stanford said, yeah, that is possible. So I said, will you guys work with us? So we started working together. And uh, our CTO, Venkat, and his team went on to make this wonderful multiplexer device. And we tested it in pig lungs, four pigs, and we were able to get very good results. So we have applied to the FDA for an emergency use authorization. And should they give us the approval, we'll go to human testing, which we think is fairly safe. And if that works, we as America can offer a signature innovation to the world where it's affordable, it's economical, and more people can have it, not just for this pandemic, but for any future use. So that's Ventilator 2.0. Wow, I'm so glad I asked. That's fantastic. I do have to ask the basic business question though here. How much is all of this costing you? We have most of this work in terms of effort have come from our engineers who have been thinking about how they can help it's very mission driven and they're doing it as an and as opposed to an or and the work that we perform on our fuel cell side is going uninterrupted with what we are doing on this side so we are keeping our eye on the core business but we are doing this as an and and the state of california and other states will just reimburse us at cost for all the parts and everything we buy we didn't do this with the profit model. We don't want to be in the ventilator business. It is a call to duty. And, uh, you know, there's a reason why every country needs to be self-reliant and have its own manufacturing. And we're very proud of our manufacturing heritage. And if we cannot be there for people at a time of need like this, why would we want to be here? I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte US, which is the sponsor of this podcast. Joe's one of the most thoughtful people I've met on the topics we discuss here every week. Joe, thanks for joining. Alan, pleasure to be with you. Joe, I get a sense from the CEOs that I've been talking with that this pandemic is actually accelerating their digital transformation. Companies that weren't that aggressive before the crisis are being forced now to step up for the sake of their survival. Is that what you're seeing? Alan, we're seeing that 
that across Deloitte's client base. The current circumstances are compressing a multi-year period of change management into a few short weeks. Those organizations that have made the investments in digital transformation are today finding it to be a source of competitive advantage. Clients and customers can see who's doing this well and who's not. And there are multiple elements to this. There's obviously the skill sets of employees, the technology platforms, the leading security protocols. But just as importantly, there is a large element of culture. The comfort level of working collaboratively in a distributed environment, the ability to embed purpose and genuine human connection in a virtualized environment to retain those critically important team dynamics and employee engagement. Joe, great thoughts as always. Wonderful to be with you, Alan. Welcome back to Leadership Next. Now I want to introduce you to a woman whose efforts to respond to the coronavirus pandemic earned her a spot on Fortune's 2020 World's Greatest Leaders list. Jane Mosbacher Morris is the founder and CEO of To The Market, a unique social for-profit enterprise that connects buyers, many of whom are corporate, with sewn goods made by a global network of small manufacturers. Now, they're typically women who often come from vulnerable or underserved communities and have often overcome terrible things like conflict, trafficking, and yes, epidemics. Now, this was already a company with a noble purpose, but this was also a chance for Jane to show that these women aren't charity recipients, they're professionals, able to step up to a huge challenge. Jane, why don't you just give us the quick overview of what To The Market is and how you were able to make this shift to PPE. I started to the market with the vision of changing the way that manufacturing was done to empower people and protect the planet. So I wanted to move away from the old model of using factories that have challenging environmental and social footprints and really focus on democratizing access in the supply chain to ethical and sustainable makers, most of whom are women around the world. In early March, when I realized that there would be a shortage of PPE in the United States, I realized that all of the work we had done in creating a supply chain with hundreds of vetted and approved makers around the world in over 20 countries could be put to even better use if they were able to source and manufacture PPE instead of focusing exclusively on what we normally do which is apparel, accessories, and home goods. So we sent out a request for proposals in early March, and we're really overwhelmed by the response. Once we got these responses uh, to the market's core team here in the United States, began vetting the responses. So looking at you know who had proposed what product, at what price, what their production capacity was, what was most relevant for which potential hospital system, And then we began reaching out to hospital systems as well as adult group homes, so homes that may house adults with mental disabilities or elderly care facilities who were in need of critical PPE but didn't necessarily know how to access this type of PPE. Who was your first big buyer? So our first big order actually came to a hospital system in Texas called Baylor, and that was for 500,000 reply masks. So why PPE? You didn't have to do that. What was the reasoning behind turning to that market? So the market decided to source and manufacture PPE because we thought it was the right thing to do. 
and it was very much so in line with our brand. I mean, our sort of saying around what our business is, is we are powering the ethical supply chain and that we are using supply chains for good. And when we knew that there was going to be a shortage of PPE in the United States, I thought that we almost had an obligation to try because we have this expertise and because we have a syndicated supply chain. So one of the biggest challenges that corporations, retailers, and brands are having right now is they're reliant on a single country or a single factory that may or may not have closed. And because to the market has hundreds of vetted and approved suppliers in over 20 countries, I knew that even if we got 10% of our makers felt comfortable creating PPE, that that would still be tremendous. And so it felt like a huge opportunity for us to add value. And I also felt like our team was equipped and ready to do it. So currently, what percentage of your suppliers are participating in the PPE effort? I would say about 10% is a fair number. There are many that would like to participate if their country opens up again. And when it opens up again, they're excited to start having the ability to export. So for example, we have makers across India that are very eager to get back to work, but they're still not able to operate in any sort of facilities. And they're not legally able to export any masks. So it's actually against the law there. You've got 10% roughly of the people in your network who are on the PPE initiative. How many units have you shipped by the third week in April? And what does it look like going forward? So as of the third week in April, we have shipped over 1.1 million units and we have received orders for close to 2 million units. So the sort of 900,000 are still being manufactured. Many of those came sort of the second half of April, but the, the number grows daily of the number of orders that are received and thankfully the number of orders that are delivered. I know you have some big corporate clients like MasterCard, Target, UBS, and Hintwater. So how do these relationships typically work? Is it is it possible I'm wearing a to-the-market garment now? It's entirely possible, and I would love if you were. So um, in normal times, to-the-market is focused on sourcing and manufacturing ethically made apparel, accessories, and home goods. And we partner with big brands, retailers, and corporations like the ones we mentioned to source and manufacture this product in a way that aligns with their values. So for example, Hintwater wanted to have branded products with their name on it. We were able to source and manufacture that product out of recycled plastic bottles, which is just a great way of a company that produces water bottles to be able to show a social good by making sure that their branded product was actually made of the recycled bottles. So that's the type of work that we do is really allowing corporations to align their values and their purchasing power. So one of the interesting things about To The Market's origin story was its reliance on women as early investors. Jane, could you tell us a little bit about that? Something that has been very important to me as I build To The Market over the last three rounds of financing that we've taken in is that we have women at every part of the value chain included in making money. And that's so important to me because despite the fact that fashion is largely about women, meaning that we are the primary consumers of fashion and we tend to be the majority of makers in the supply chain, 
we in fact tend not to be the owners of the factories, the owners or presidents of the fashion companies or the investors. So it's been very important to me that to the market is different and that we have women at every part of the value chain. When we started getting more and more orders for PPE, we started getting order sizes that were out of the normal scope of what to the market would accept for uh, putting capital to work, meaning the order size was such that we were having to give our factories much larger sums than we would normally deploy all up front at once. And we had a really extraordinary female investor who just stepped up and said, well, I'll just lend you the money and I'll lend you the money so that you can have working capital so that you can fill these orders for these hospital systems. So it sounds like when, if I'm understanding this correctly, that when you get an order and you take it to a supplier, it often comes with the cash that they need to get the supplies that they need. Is that right? That is right. And actually it's one of the existing values of to the market is that a huge reason why these women-owned and operated factories or these fair trade factories or these artisan groups haven't been able to produce for big brands, retailers, and corporations is that they simply can't afford net 30, net 60, net 90 days payment. So when to the market's able to partner with them, we're able to bridge that financing for them and make sure that they get paid mostly before the product even ships. What is next for you, both practically and in the big picture vision? I think to the market is going to continue to focus on sourcing and manufacturing PPE as long as it's needed. I'm very excited about the opportunity to partner with international nonprofits and help them source and manufacture and then distribute critical PPE within highly vulnerable communities. So looking at places like Syrian refugees, that to me is sort of the next level for to the market and really assisting both in the job creation and sustainment for our makers, but also then allowing them to distribute that within their own region. And then a little bit longer term, I hope that what to the market stands for, this idea of conscious consumerism becomes more and more mainstream. And you know, whether we like it or not, oftentimes crises really force us both personally and professionally to reassess what's important to us and our values. And I hope that consumers and I hope that business leaders really ask themselves, how am I spending my time on this planet? And with that reassessment, I hope there's a renewed commitment to make sure that the work that all of us do in the products that we buy and the products that we source that we're doing it in a way that is respecting every individual in the process. And I hope that conscious consumerism becomes a much bigger part of the way that people think about how they spend their money and how their organizations operate so that they are answering that question of what am I doing to benefit humankind? Fascinating, inspiring interviews, Ellen. I thought so, too. And I think in a world that needs inspiration right now, I hope it makes a difference. Yeah, well, we don't know how this crisis is going to end. We don't know what the world will look like when it does end. But we do know that the next few months are going to present many opportunities for leaders like KR and Jane to reassess what's really important to them, to ask the question, how am I spending my time on this planet, to step up and use their business as a force for good. And we're going to continue to follow those stories here on Leadership Next. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala. 
written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. Hey, Leadership Next listeners. There's more C-suite insight available now at the all-new Fortune. You'll find expert curation, exclusive videos, and clear analysis on topics ranging from AI to digital health. Subscriptions start at less than a dollar a week. Visit fortune.com slash subscribe and discover why it pays to know.